Welcome to the School of Travel's podcast. I'm your host, Becky Gillespie, and each week I bring you stories of how travel can truly change your life if you take the chance to get out on the road and step out of your comfort zone. My guests also share travel tips and lessons they've learned along the way, which I hope inspires you to let travel be your teacher. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the School of Travel's podcast. Today, I am super excited to finally bring you an interview with my longtime friend and the founder of a company that I've now had the pleasure of working with for over five years, Peter Galante. Before I started this podcast, I actually used to do voiceover work for a company based in Tokyo called Innovative Language that produces online language learning content for 34 languages. If you've ever searched for how to learn a language on YouTube or Google, you very likely come across one of Innovative Language's websites or YouTube channels known as JapanesePod101.com, FrenchPod101.com, TurkishPod101.com, etc. Peter and I recorded many podcast sessions together, and without spending my time in the voiceover booth working with recording those podcasts for Innovative, I may never have been inspired to become a podcaster myself. So this is one of the many reasons that I'm so excited to share Peter's insights with you today on how his company got its start in Japan and how he was able to start a business in a foreign country and scale to a company with remote staff now working all over the world, in addition to those who work in the main office in Tokyo. Not only has Peter managed to continue to grow his business over time and adapt during the pandemic, but he also continues to be a curious, generous soul traveling around Japan and satisfying his foodie heart in search of his next great meal in Japan. We will also share what inspired Peter to come to Japan in the first place, why we love Japan, and what makes it a great and also challenging place to start a business along with some tools that remote companies can use to stay efficient. It is now my great pleasure to introduce you to my friend, Peter. Welcome to episode 65 of the School of Travels podcast. I am so excited today, listeners, because I'm finally getting to interview someone I've looked up to for seven years now. We've known each other for seven years, Peter. Can you believe it? Becky, you know, I when I think of great friends in the world, I think of you, but I don't know if it's reciprocated. Number 65. Well, at least on top 100. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I just I thought, you know, he must be a busy guy. And as the listeners are going to find out, I think you are a very busy guy. But I'm so excited for you to share your experiences, both with travel and with business today. So first of all, Peter, Peter Galante, by the way, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I was born in the U.S. in New York. Uh, I was raised in I was born in New York City, Queens, and I was raised a little bit outside of the city. And um, uh, when I was 21, that's when I first came to Japan. But before that, um, we traveled mostly um in north america uh canada mexico a few islands but um i think what was interesting about my upbringing was um even though we didn't travel uh off continent um we did have a lot of people come to our house uh my older brother and older sister uh they're adopted from vietnam um we had someone come from japan to stay with us for a year we had someone from uh a uh, refugee from Bosnia come to stay with us for two years after the war. So um, 
even though we didn't get to make it so far, we've always had people in and out of the house and uh, lots of international friends. So I think that's kind of what piqued a lot of my interest uh, in uh, the international community. Wow, Peter, it's amazing. I never knew any of, any of that all the time that we worked together in Japan in the office. And that is that's amazing and wonderful of your parents to introduce you all to these experiences at an early age. Do you have any memories of anything in particular from that time with people staying in your house from such different countries? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I think, uh, you know, yes, uh my parents, uh, yeah, I, I think I was very, very blessed. And, um, you know, when we say, uh, when we kind of look back at how I wound up in Japan, the main reason I was interested in Japan was because of the exchange teacher that came to visit. And by spending time with her, I got very interested in Japan. Then I went to university and I studied Japanese and my Japanese teacher encouraged me to go to Japan. And, uh, you know, I've been here since, uh, since 1998. That is amazing. And so you you went to Japan like already studying Japanese. So I'm guessing that it wasn't like, well, how big was the culture shock that first time you physically landed in Japan? Uh, you know, that's a good question. Um, yeah, culture shock. Uh, you know, I think when, you know, you're young, you adapt much quicker. I think as humans, we adapt. <laughs> and, uh, when you're young, you can adapt very quickly. So and I don't think I had such crazy, uh, culture shock. And the key to that was kind of focusing, uh, on my studies. And that means that, um, I kept setting goals for myself to, learn Japanese quicker and quicker and quicker. It is a monumental task. I tried to crunch it into a year. It didn't really work out, but it kept me very busy. I remember um in the morning, uh, I would go to Japanese school from uh, 9 a.m. to uh, 1 p.m. Then I'd teach from 1.30 to 9 p.m. And then I would go to the local izakaya or bar until 9 to about 12. And I wouldn't drink. I would just try to communicate with the people there. On my days off, I would go to the library to study Japanese. And one day I kind of couldn't help but think if I studied this hard while I was in the U.S., maybe I could have been a doctor or something. <laughs> wow, what a schedule. So that's when you first arrived at the age of 21. You were keeping that schedule. And you, I guess you entered Japan on a student visa or were you on a working visa right away? Working visa, working visa. I do know what you're saying about like no culture shock. I felt the same, actually. I came at 22 to Tokyo and started working on a working visa. And people say, oh, wasn't it so difficult? I, I had absolutely, honestly, like no culture shock. And I don't know why, because I hadn't really studied Japanese before, but just something made sense to me about Tokyo and the public transportation and just the orderly way that they did things. I think my brain really clicked in with that. And then it's just a matter of, yeah, learning the language and starting to get more into the culture. Yeah, I think uh, one one incident I do it. This kind of stuck with me. Um, so I think you know, Becky, you're American too, and it's like uh, you know the phrase, "Yeah, let's let's get together," and that kind of means, "Yeah, I don't really plan on seeing you again for a while." <laughs> or um, you know, we can be um, kind of uh, courteous uh, when we're dismissive. <laughs> um, so I remember um, when I first came to Japan, uh, I met this guy, and he's like, oh, "We should hang out." I'm like. Yeah, let's get together. Uh, yeah, let's hang out and, uh, I'll see you soon. 
And then a week later, he showed up the same spot, same time. And yeah, that's my first best friend. <laughs> but it was so funny how he stuck to what we had spoke about. Um, and like off very casually, if for me, it was, I didn't plan to see him again. And for him, it was like, okay, I'll see, I'll meet you at the same spot, uh, that we spoke last time a week later. So. Wow. Yeah. That reminds me of one thing I really love about Japan, which is like people show up on time. And honestly, growing up, I wasn't like a big stickler for time. I remember my grandfather was and he gave my mom a lot of trouble if we showed up to any event late. But as I got older, I really like I like the loyalty that that, you know, it was associated with showing up on time and saying you'll do something and then it happens at that time. And that happens so much in Japan. And that's was honestly one of the things I was really gelling with there. But how about for you? Like, what do you love about Japan after all these years? Um, so I think there are different stages everyone goes through in life. And right now, um, you know, right now, uh, Japan is uh, wonderful for my family. I have three boys and my wife. We live in the middle of Tokyo. And it's kind of cool. Even though we live in the downtown center, uh, we let the kids go to the park by themselves. My older son is now 12 and 10. And my middle son's 10. So they're allowed to explore more and more as the years go. And I don't know if, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I guess it depends on the environment. So I, I feel very fortunate that the kids can do that. Uh, it's very convenient. Uh, Tokyo is a wonderful city. Um, when I was younger and I first came to Japan, what I found interesting was that I didn't start in Tokyo and I started more in, um, a smaller city. So it gave me a chance to get some more personal connections. <laughs> actually, I, my best friend, uh, actually gave the best man's speech at his wedding, a Japanese guy and the speech was in Japanese. Uh, but, um, so I think, you know, we all have, uh, these cycles we go through. I, I wouldn't want to, I'm very happy where I am now, but I wouldn't have traded that experience for the first city I came to for anything. So I think it's all about adapting to where you go and keeping an open mind, being positive, and uh, yeah, good things seem to follow. I do know that you love the food, Peter. You didn't mention the food, but wow, you know the food and, and places around Tokyo and probably now greater Japan so well, and you're always like trying new food, and, and that was that has to be up in the top three things I love about Japan. Yeah, the, the food is wonderful. The people are wonderful. And, uh, you know, the city uh, just functions so well. But, yes, um, I, I think probably I often talk with some uh, people and what I think Japan does as well as uh, some of the, the great culinary countries in the world, such as Italy or China, uh, you can get really amazing food for a really reasonable price. You don't have to you know, go out for a fancy dinner to have an incredible meal. Um, there's people here who, you know, uh, are doing like preparing are in the culinary arts for their, the passion they have for this. So it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I think it's a misconception. A lot of people just think Tokyo must, everything must be expensive, but that's not true. Like the food, like you said, the value for the the price is just incredible. Yeah, the Japanese have the term. I don't, uh, I've been here so long. I, I don't know if this is like a, such an accepted term, but the cost performance of the food or the restaurant. Um, so yeah, the value, the bang for your buck, however you want to phrase it. But, uh, you get such good value. Uh, you can eat very well for, uh, $10 or, you know, eight euros, whatever the exchange is right now for a thousand to two thousand yen. You can have a world class meal, especially 
if you take advantage of the timing. Um, a lot of restaurants will do lunchtime as kind of a lost leader, meaning uh, you'll get a very similar meal to dinner, but at a fraction of the cost, just so that you can experience the restaurant, the menu. And uh, they don't make a lot of money at lunch, but it kind of you'll remember that when you have to come back for business. Yeah, it's incredible. Such incredible deals to be found if you go out and start exploring the lunch scene there for sure. Um, and so I, I did want to, like, when I first contacted you to have this interview, I, I asked about your travel recently because of all the restrictions, and especially in Japan, it's been very strict to get into the country and, and you know, vice versa, out to come back. And you said, I've been doing a lot of travel in Japan. And so I was going to ask you what some of your best traveling experiences in Japan have been. Uh, during uh, this unfortunate outbreak. Right. This you may have discovered you may have discovered new loves during this time because you've had more time to focus on Japan. But, yeah, in general, in general, what places or what experiences stand out to you? Oh, Becky, we got Oh, boy. OK, I'll I'll try to frame it. And I I think where you start. I know (laughs) I have this theme, uh, adaptability, adaptability. I'll repeat it again and again. You know, when I was younger, uh, the best travel that I did was Japan has this. um this program, um, I should probably check, <laughs> but when we were young, uh, you could get, you could travel the local train for as much as you can ride for five days, but it's the local train, not the bullet train. So you're, you're going ultra slow around Japan. And, uh, my wife, my best friend and I, the three of us, we took a trip basically all around the coast of Northern Japan over five days, right? We, and it was such an incredible experience. And the best part about this ticket is it was like the equivalent of a hundred dollars. So again, if you can find your body can take that at 21, 22, I couldn't do it now. Um, so <laughs> now I've you want to do that trip with your three kids. <laughs> I kind of want to, but, um, yeah, I think uh, I prefer the, the hotel with two rooms <laughs> um, at this point <laughs> in my life. So when you're young um, or, you know, even now if you're adventurous, you know, taking a car and um, taking a train, looking for these great deals when um, just being advantageous is your best way. That's kind of how some of the most fun trips can happen. Uh, more recently, again, adaptability and being advantageous. Uh, a lot of the hotels um, really had no customers, so they were willing to negotiate some pretty good deals. So I wound up uh, going to Hokkaido, uh, to Niseko, and uh, I wound up staying much longer than I had expected last winter, which ha- happened to coincide with the best snowfall ever in the last, not ever, but in the last 20, 30 years. And the hotel was very accommodating in willing to uh, cut us a deal to have us stay longer. So again, we were able to I think it's just being opportunistic, advantageous, talking a lot, building a network and kind of really uh, being ready to go and making travel a part of your monthly life, if you want to say that. Yeah, and I think that there's going to be a lot more opportunity in the future for people to do that because it seems that so many of us have gone 100 percent remote. And I think many people will stay on that, like in that mode after everybody's allowed to go back to offices. Yeah, um, I, I think it's very, very well said. You can uh, travel and you, know, you have to be a little diligent. I mean, the, to be honest, I don't know how much you talk about uh, this theme on the show, but 
One of the biggest challenges about traveling is we're also creatures of routine, right? So when you go somewhere new, it really takes a lot of effort to set up a, a routine in general and then to make it a productive routine where you can write, where you can exercise, where you can watch what you eat. It's, it's kind of like travel is the like kind of polar opposite of structured routine. So, but the more you travel, the better you can get at it. And having that ability to quickly adapt to a very productive routine will enable you to do whatever you want and go wherever you want by like and maintaining your productivity. Oh man, there's lots to unpack. For, <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. And we do talk about this issue on the show from time to time. And yeah, it's, it's a real issue for people that are, you know, long-term travelers like this and especially like the gym. I always find people saying, ah, oh, I'm just going to have to skip my gym routine for this week until I get reestablished in my new location. But like you said, in Hokkaido, you extended the time you were there. So I guess, you know, you were, you would have been able, if there had been a gym nearby and you wanted to do it, you know, you could have started to get those routines in place. Yeah. So these positive routines, you know, it's interesting in a way to have your whole routine disrupted. It gives you a chance to reset and adapt to positive routines. But most of the time, they don't last long, much like going to the gym doesn't last long for most people. It's, 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 it's a challenge to keep it up. Yeah, I think one of the keys we need is like in the future, if more people are seeing the world as their office and traveling around in it, we're going to need to have truly international companies that are like like McDonald's, for example, where you always can you can kind of bet there's going to be a McDonald's somewhere in your vicinity, sad to say. But like, what if a gym was like that? And then you could just plug into your international membership. It's like that seems to be something that these travelers are really wishing they could just tap into. But every single gym has different rules and it can get really uh, challenging. Becky, did you just use McDonald's in a gym for your <laughs> illustrate an example here about healthiness? I did. I did. Come to think of it. Yes. Becky, you, you're, you're, I'm not taking you out fine dining. You, that's your punishment for your next Tokyo visit. <laughs> um, well, I've, I've got a McDonald's right on the corner here where I am. So this is what I'm saying. It's everywhere. Why can't the gyms be everywhere? It's, um, you know, but that's, that's the thing that goes kind of to this mindset, right? Like, um, you know, I think there's a lot of great equipment for travel and staying healthy and even push-ups, sit-ups. And, but it's just, um, it's so hard to switch gears so fast, right? You know, when we're home, it takes years to develop certain routines, right? Um, so I think it's, I think it's a mindset thing. Even, you know, a quick jog around the hotel or a quick jog into town to get your coffee, um, can, you know, not give you a full workout, but it can give you something and, you know, contribute to enhancing your experience. But, yeah. Yes, definitely. It's it's an interesting like it's, it's to go through all of this as nomadic and, and remote workers, you know, in these last two years. It's it's really, you know, seeing if you can get those routines going. And, yeah, we'll have to see if it gets easier as people work longer remotely. Yeah, um, I think it's um, I think it's pretty challenging, to be honest. Um, but um, but so, yeah. So, OK. <laughs> we can go down. Uh, let's. There's let's a, go good, a big rabbit hole we can go down there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Niseko, which you mentioned, is a wonderful place, especially 
for the winter. Uh, I would say mostly for the winter uh, in Hokkaido. It's like three hours from Sapporo by bus. But yeah, that, I'm so glad you got to spend more time there. It's, it's, it's such a magical place. Yeah. And then, um, you know, with COVID, a lot of people rediscovered cars, you know, in Japan because uh, the trains and planes are so convenient. It's uh, the, the charm of a good old, uh, you know, road trip has been wonderful. Um, you know, the kids got acquainted with listening to music uh, while they were traveling. So uh, driving through the uh, countryside and taking the highways. So, yeah, we were able to rediscover Kyoto with uh, very few um, tourists, which was quite magical. And then Okinawa, some islands to the south were, uh, you know, absolutely uh, incredible. Um, so, we made the most of a lot of domestic uh, travel, which in the past we were not able to because a lot of times when these windows open up, we tend to go overseas. And the kids have been traveling since, um, you know, I mean, since they were born. We've had the kids on the plane. It's always been a part of their routine, you know, uh, Christmas, uh, spring break and um, summer. We're always on a plane and uh the kids go to international school, which is actually a lot more conducive to overseas travel because uh, a lot of the kids in international schools, the, the way they work is they stack the holidays. So for spring break, we get three weeks. For Christmas, we get three weeks. And that's entitled, that's intentionally designed so that you can travel, you know, so families can go back and see their families in their home country. So we've been very advantageous with that. That's great. I'm, I'm glad, though, that they're getting, like you said, they're getting used to road trips. They're getting they're not on the plane so much. And so they're like you're really focused on each other now, having spent so much more time together than I'm sure you did on a daily basis before March 2020. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been wonderful. So I'm thank you for sharing some of the travel experiences. I'm, I'm also wanting to have our listeners hear your incredible story about after you arrived in Japan, you did something that most people, and I can say this from 12 years of experience living there, most Americans do not land in Tokyo and end up starting a company in Tokyo that ends up having like over 50 employees and then many remote workers around the world. So I'm I like this could take a whole other, you know, a whole other day to discuss. But I'm really curious of, of a like in a nutshell how you started this company. What company did you start for the listeners so they, they're aware of it? Because we can all use the, the company that you have founded. And then, yeah, what was that journey to establishing a company in Japan? OK, so um, after. I came to Japan. Um, I was teaching English and going to Japanese school for two years. Then I was like, I don't really, I'm not ready to work. So I went back and most of the kids, most of the uh, fellow classmates in the Japanese school were trying to get into Japanese university. And I said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. So I became a research student and then I got into a master's degree program at um, a university here in Tokyo. So I moved to Tokyo to go to the program. Um, and then from there, I got into the PhD program. And while I was studying for my PhD in economics, I started uh, JapanesePod101.com, which was a podcast-centric uh, way to learn the Japanese language. And that evolved into innovative language learning, which is an ed tech and media company focused on second language acquisition. So, And right now, Innovative produces audio and video language learning lessons in 34 languages. 
And those, lef- those lessons have been downloaded or viewed on YouTube over 1 billion times. It's been quite a journey in these 15 years. Congratulations, first of all. And listeners, I have to say, if you look up anything about like, you know, top 10 phrases for Italian or if you're going on a trip, oftentimes on YouTube, the Japanese, well, the pod 101 or innovative language content is going to come up almost near the top or at the top. So it's it's incredible what you've built over these 15 years. Well, we've done it thanks to incredible community and incredible people like you. Becky is actually on a lot of these podcasts and videos. You can hear her yeah, voice. So- we actually worked in the office in Tokyo together for four years. And one of my favorite like parts of the week is when we would get together in the studio and, and we would talk about how you were learning languages and you had a goal of learning a different language every year. And we would like get an update on how it was going and what features of innovative language you were using. Um, how is the language learning going, Peter? Because I haven't, you know, it's been a f- couple of years now since we got to get it like a weekly update. Yeah, I mostly fail those challenges. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's good. It's a good mental exercise. But you know, learning a language uh, to a com- like to be very uh, to a high level of competency is quite hard. Um, so, uh, but it's good. Each year, I do pick a language to uh, study and learn. But right now, I have uh, four languages that I use in my rotation: English, uh, Chinese with my wife at home and the kids, but. Uh, we mix Chinese and English, Japanese because we're here in Japan, and then Italian because that was my pet project that I don't want to let go. Oh, that's great. I think it's always important to have one of those pet projects among everything else. So, okay, so you just, like you said, you you gave me that nutshell and all the things you've accomplished with innovative language. What obstacles did you face at the beginning? Um, how did you go from having a podcast like just because I could see myself doing this in Tokyo at home, but how did it go from that to having an office? And, you know, how did you find the support and face these obstacles? Yeah, to be honest, it's it's a lot of luck. Um, and I, I like that luck is like preparation plus opportunity. Then after that was like a lot of hard work. But, um, you know, in a nutshell, uh, I had pitched an idea to I had a part time job and I pitched an idea to the owner of the company and uh the owner decided to pass on it. And then like a year later, the idea was in the newspaper. Uh, so this time when I went and pitched an idea, she's like, okay, you could do it. <laughs> and then I reached out to, uh, you know, a uh, close friend from uh, middle school all the way through, you know, still to this day and asked that if he wanted to join me in this uh, new venture. And he did. And uh, yeah, thanks to, the network that I had like built up over the years. And that's why, um, you know, one of the most valuable things that, uh, you can have in the world well beyond like material things is your, your incredible network of friends and family and, um, their networks that you build over your life. And, you know, that's kind of in a nutshell, my network gave me the opportunity. And then I was prepared in a way just to share my story of how I learned Japanese. And then after that, it was a lot of hard work by a lot of amazing people. Yeah, you truly have an amazing staff there from all over the world. It's it's incredible to go into your office. And I I, I want to get something clarified, though. Your, your friend from middle school, when you asked him to join the project, was he coming on as an investor or was he moving to Tokyo to help you? What role did he play at the beginning? He's been located in New York and I've been located in Tokyo since the beginning. Uh, he came on to take care of the technical aspects while I focused on the content and we managed to grow this working remotely on opposite sides of the world. 
and and it, I have to say it was it was early on in the remote like life that we're all living now because like you said 15 years and yeah that's that's a huge um that's that's a key point because like I I I think that in a way we started in in similar situations in Tokyo but you know I didn't pitch an idea to someone you pitched it and then you thought even though I'm still in Tokyo the whole time I can work with someone back home and we can get this going and that's incredible I think that's a good learn like a good lesson for people who might try to do something similar if they move to a place like Tokyo or any place that's not their original home you know and um it's so interesting, you know, how the world works. I remember um, and one, one of the powerful motivators for me here going out into the world is, you know, everything here, everything that I've built, it's by myself. You know, it's there are no family introductions. There are no, uh, you know, friend of a friend introductions. And um, that was because when I first came, the Internet wasn't as developed. It's much easier now to maintain these uh, friends or friends or people you have contact with a short uh, people you contact have contact with for a short time so it's easy to grow a network but it takes a lot of care and a lot of time and sincerity and effort to maintain that network and it's such an amazing thing to do because especially if you plan to travel or you, you never know where you're going to end up and you never know if, how a friend or acquaintance or friend of a friend can wind up you know, making your experience just creating an incredible experience together because I often find my favorite memories and my best memories are once in a while it's the city, once in a while it's the food, but nine times out of ten it's the people you're spending that time with in that place that make all the difference, right? Oh, yes. Yes, indeed. And how did you um, meet and bring on board some of the key players in your company that have stayed around? You know, it's so funny. Um, I spend a lot of time mentoring. Uh, not, not a massive amount of time, but I spend time, a lot of time, a lot of my enjoyable time mentoring uh, people who are just starting up. And I heard someone the other day talking and they said that they're recruiting from their community. And that's what we used to do. We found the people who really care the most from the community and have stayed with us, uh, have stayed with us the longest. So in your case, if you're looking for talent, Becky, you might reach out to your community and find people who have the same passion as you traveling and working and, uh, being able to move this nomadic lifestyle. Uh, you're going to find the best people suited to share your vision and your passion inside of your own community. And we kind of strayed away from that. So uh, we got to get back to our roots. Yes, yes. And I I understand, too, because now that we're all behind our computers and not in the office so much, I I think it is harder to establish those tight bonds with people and and feel like you're really getting to know them. I was speaking to someone, and it's kind of interesting. I think um, physical, meaning in person, uh, once in a while and virtual, they, they, they can work really well together. But yeah, all virtual, it's, uh, it's tough. It's tough. So making sure you cycle in the physical, uh, is really powerful to the relationship. Yes, I can see that. I can see that. Um, what advice would you give to anyone trying to start a company in a foreign country to make sure that they don't give up? Surround yourself by people who have done it. Um, 
reach out to them. And for every person that says no, there's 10 other that will say yes. Um, find those people. Find out how they went through it. And most of the time, um, you know, the biggest challenge is taking that first step, executing the first thing. And then what happens is you're executing, executing your mindset, you know, you, you lose confidence or, you know, you kind of question yourself. But if you're surrounding yourself with people who've done it, you know, not only can they help you maintain your mindset, but they could potentially help accelerate all the problems that you're going to run into early on that might uh, might make it uh, very problematic for you to reach your reach your dream and reach your goal. So surround yourself with those people, and you know, feel free to reach out to me. You know, I could uh, elaborate further, but you know, you want to find the people in your community that have been down the path that you want to walk. That's such powerful advice. It's kind of reminded me of joining like a mastermind group as well. And if you find a mastermind of people that are doing similar things, it's even more powerful. I, I recall a few times I have been in a circle such as this and I will say like, oh, I can't do this because of X. And somebody immediately will change your mindset on that because they've already been through it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I remember the, we had a class action lawsuit, our first class action lawsuit. That's when you know you made it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, something else I didn't know, Peter. Oh, how did you get through that one? I mean, you know, you go through one and, um, you know, the people in your network can calm you down. Uh, oh, this guy, yeah, he, he sues everyone. Um, it was the guys that were suing the people on uh, YouTube for not having the subtitles for uh the audio impaired people and basically um it was kind of a bit of a legacy law uh extending from the tv how every tv station needs to have uh something for um the like for people who are um is it audio impaired or people who are deaf or like yeah um and so when the internet and video started to explode that that law slightly was kind of a gray area. And then one of the judges ruled that um, basically someone sued uh, one of the universities saying that, you know, it's not right that you're putting out this video content on YouTube and it doesn't have to close caption. And the judge sided with the lawyer. And then afterwards, anyone who gets a very high number of subscribers, they'll they'll serve them. They'll just say, OK, we're, you, you know, our client and it's always the same client <laughs> was. uh you know, uh, suffer damages because you didn't have closed captions. And basically it winds up, you, you wind up settling out of court with this guy. It's like cheaper to settle than go through, uh, uh man. Yep. Good old USA is cheaper to settle than actually pro- like, uh, go to, uh, the courtroom to fight it out. And so that's how these guys making lots of money. I would never have known to even think of that if I had started a similar company to watch out for that. It's like, that's, oh. That's so tough. And it could be something that I would get, you know, immediately fearful of and like, oh, maybe the whole thing's going to fall apart now because of this. We don't have the money for this or something. But I'm, I'm guessing and hoping that, you know, you found in your network a lawyer and they helped you through it and educated you on it. And then, like you said, it sounds like there may have been another class action at some point, but you were probably ready and well equipped for the next one, you know. <laughs> Luckily, no more. Knock on wood. Thank you, Becky. But, uh... Okay. You said your first one. I was like, oh, like, don't oh, want a Lord. second or Yeah. Oh, I hope I don't jinx myself. But, yeah, no, because of the network, uh, an incredible lawyer and a friend uh, calmed us down, helped us, guide us to the right way. So, you know, the more people you meet, uh, you know, 
try your best, put your best foot forward, see, always see what you could do for someone else. And then you never know when you might need uh, something. And sometimes someone can help you the way you help them. That's so important. Like no man is an island. Like it's it's really important to help other people too. Like you said, you're mentoring, like, you know, make sure you're supporting your network and they will come back and support you, hopefully. Yeah. Yes. One, one more interesting story. We also do uh, lots of uh, home swapping. So it's like actually a preferred way to travel. So we'll trade our home in Tokyo for another home around the world. And we often try to trade with uh, kids of similar age. So uh, the, kind of toys overlap and um it's it's just a wonderful way to travel and uh, there's a french family before covid started um or right that christmas right before that was uh 2019 was it or 2000 yeah 2019 and they were traveling around the world and um they asked if they could swap homes with us and we're like uh no you can't swap but if you want to come for christmas dinner you know feel free and they're like seriously and so they came and uh yeah we had a wonderful christmas dinner together with uh some friends stopped by they were and they were every year we get a message from them just thinking about you know how fun the christmas was when we were traveling around the world and if you come to france please make sure you come to see us and the kids say hi and yeah that's those type of um you know things those type of network you know i don't know what the the uh the family like uh does off the top of my head right now but uh you know, you never know when the kids grow up, they may get together, they may wind up in the same city. So it's fascinating the way uh, these networks uh, can be maintained through social media and certain messages and things like this. Oh, it's fantastic. And like going above and beyond when you didn't need to, you know, it's if they, that's what is memorable and, and they'll cherish and pay it forward or pay it back to you in some future event. We also got so much out of it. The kids got to meet uh, their peers from France, and uh, it was wonderful. Did you start learning French from that day onward, Peter? Oh, my French. French is so tough. Uh, you know, I uh, they, we always get fixated on the pronunciation. Every French teacher I have, French and German are my two tough languages to learn because uh, they won't let you go beyond the pronunciation. I, I, it must be like chalk, like like nails on a chalkboard because they'll never be like, okay, don't worry about your pronunciation. No, no, no. Let's go back and fix it. (laughs) Sounds like Portuguese here. I'm learning the European Portuguese that it's much different than Brazilian Portuguese. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're laughing at me. I'm nowhere near where I need to be with that. So Peter, I have a request. Can you add European Portuguese (laughs) onto your network of languages? It's very different from what you have for Brazilian. Oh boy, we should. Um, yeah, we should. There's so too many, so many languages to add. Yeah. Did you have any? Uh, while we're on the topic, do you have any plans for future languages coming up in the next year or so? In no. addition to the 34. No, right no. now we're focused okay. more on live lessons. Uh, so we have a really great self-study product. Uh, you could try it for free. Uh, you can watch the uh, videos on YouTube for free. You can. Come sign up. All of our audio lessons are free, so free for a short period. Then they go behind a paid wall, so you can test it out. But we're very happy with where the product has come. It started as a podcast. Now it's more of a product that has a pathway, and there are also assessments inside of the pathway. So it's come a long way. And the final missing piece that we've added over the last year has been a teacher to facilitate and your learning. So 
it's one of the, the, the hardest parts about distance learning and self-study. Um, it can be a bit lonely. There's a community factor that's not there. The progress, how do you measure your own progress? So this teacher and the class addresses the community. The assessment uh, focuses on um, your progress or allows you to measure it. So um, that's kind of where we've had a, a lot of effort and a, a lot of good success so far. Well, how do you keep everything all together and running smoothly with all these? I'm sure you have a lot of new employees working for you in, in on that teaching side. How do you keep it all together? I believe it's called duct tape. <laughs> um, <laughs> we're like we're hanging on by threads. <laughs> You're improvising every day. Like, how could we patch this up and keep it going? Yes. Um, but, uh, fortunately, uh, so many incredible, amazing, uh, talented people that go above and beyond and, uh, very, very fortunate to have such an incredible team. I'm, I, I'm sure. Do you have any favorite tools that you guys use to help teams work together across so many countries? Uh, I, <laughs> hmm. I think to be honest, uh, any tool that you use can uh, be effective for you. So, of course, Google Documents is like one of our uh, – that's probably the backbone of many of the things we do. Uh, it's really incredible to be able to share. So uh, for us, Google Documents. And then Slack is a team. But, you know, I, I think actually probably email could be more effective. Um, it's all how it's used, and it's very, very hard to get a lot of people to – Use the tool the way it was meant to be used, and uh, I'm guilty as charged. It's not like I use the tool in my preferred way. Uh, the more the tools proliferate, the more you know we have chats going on in WhatsApp, in Messenger, in Slack, uh, email. Uh, so um, I think whatever works best for you. For me, it's uh, the DM on Slack. And with Google Documents, those are the two most powerful things. And uh, emails still really, uh, really powerful for uh, staying in front of people. Slack is uh, too fast, you know, too moves so fast. Yeah. Have you guys started using? Have you been doing a lot of Zoom meetings as well in these past couple of years? Oh my. Okay. Can I redo my answer? <laughs> yeah, Zoom. <laughs> Zoom is really good. Actually, the lessons, the live lessons are conducted on Zoom um, and Zoom is really actually good for meetings. So, OK, I'm changing my answer. You can edit this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we can edit this. <laughs> Google Docs, but, Zoom, email. Yeah, I do love how Zoom allows you to record everything happening. So you can always, if you're learning a language, for example, go back and see what the teacher said again or repeat what the teacher's saying. Um, that's great. And it's amazing how far Zoom has come in the last couple of years. Yeah, actually, you know, Upwork is very nice, too, for finding people to work. Uh, Fiverr, finding people. We, we have a new software now, uh, HiBob we're using, um, and that's for managing HR for so many people. Uh, located all over. This might be an interesting uh, company for you to look into because uh, really relevant to people working all over the world. Like you can see who your team members are, etc. They what Slack Slack seems to be focused on um, productivity, and HiBob is a little more focused on HR. So people can write their profile a little more uh, to introduce who they are. Um, so it adds a nice element for people 
who you can't physically meet. So actually, yeah, okay, I, I totally blew that answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's actually a software I haven't heard of, or so I'm gonna look into that. Yes. And um, h- how do you start? How do you learn about these new tools? Let's say, does just one person in the company suggest it, and then you start trying and maybe adopting it? Um, you know, I there's a lot that have like a lot of stuff is forced by um, like problem solving, right? So you, you have uh, one freelance worker, then you have one part-time worker, then you have one full-time worker, and then two, then three, then four. Then all of a sudden, the system that you had, which worked for two workers, doesn't work for 20. Um, so it, it's really challenging um, because one of the problems in growing, probably the biggest, um, again, this theme of uh, adaptability, one of the biggest issues in growing is being like, okay, today we have an HR problem. I don't know a lot about HR. Let me take four hours and try and solve this problem, right? And that's why if your network is really organized, you can contact and really get some great answers very quickly. Uh, but in my case, um, you know, it, there, I should, you know, I should take my own advice right now. <laughs> Got to organize my network better. But yeah, so a lot of it's like just researching, uh, testing, and then finding the best tool for that problem. But that's only step one. And then actually using the tool is another whole different set of issues. Like you can set up a system, but then having people use it, it's a big problem. And uh, the best, the way I could best illustrate this is, you know, Slack, 90% of the communication are companies direct messages. And Slack is intended for you to have channels so everyone can see what's going on. It's just people are very used to communicating in certain ways. And it's, it's very tough to change that. So when a problem comes up in a company, you have to find, you have to first find a good solution. And in our case, we're t- like, we'll use Hibob as the example. So we find a HR tool. You have to set it up. And now you still need a resource or someone to facilitate everyone using it the right way. Otherwise, you're spending money and no one's using it the right way. Yeah, and I can imagine this is a really common problem that companies, as they start to scale, face. And I was like, I had had a question here about like the structure of your business and how you've managed it and set it up to to keep scaling. Because as you said, you now have 34 languages. Is your company, how is it structured? Is it top down or is it now a more flat structure with several leaders? Um, yeah, because I'm, I'm curious how you how you keep everything going, like you said, duct tape as, as things start to scale and get bigger. It's um to be honest, I you know, and um, I like to be transparent, and I don't have a great answer for you because it's a problem I'm still struggling with. And you know, as the company ages, meaning people get older, there's families, and uh, you know, families tend to come first. So you know, all of a sudden there are no more all nighters or things like this. And the question to answer now is that um, there's still a top structure top-down structure where there are managers in place, but there's often a lot of confusion. And, you know, this pandemic has, like, exacerbated that, that and shown the cracks that sometimes we're waiting too long for uh, a response. Sometimes I am the bottleneck. And so I don't have a great answer. And, um, you know, when we moved, I think in the, the first six months, we've always kept thinking we'd be back in the office soon, back in the office soon. So... One thing that has helped is uh, 
working in smaller groups, like uh, back in the uh, old days, that that's been very effective. But yeah, the structure is still there, but it, it needs some readdressing, especially. You know, what are we going to do next year after this season? You know, we're hoping to target, you know, early next year to go back to some new sense of normalcy. But um, I think two key points that I realized throughout this whole thing, and we touched on this earlier, that physical is um, important. And when the pandemic first started, it was a very, actually, to be honest, it was a smooth transition for our company because the teams were set. And the projects were in motion, and most projects are half a year. Now we're a year and a half in, and it's really hard to onboard someone completely remotely. And HiBob is HiBob is a tool that addresses part of that, but it's still very different than having someone in the office, which you can onboard them in a matter very, very quickly. And one of the, the people we have the most success with are people like you, Becky, people who've been in Tokyo, who've been to our office, who've trained with us, who've spent time with us. So the relationship is stronger. They understand how we work. They understand uh, the tone of how we text. So someone who might read it like, what are these, how mean are these guys might read the text by remembering the tone we use in our conversations. So having some sense of that, that physical is been a really important thing to us. And we haven't had that in about a year and a half. So, Getting new projects started, onboarding, and you know, maintaining some of the tight relationships are some of the real struggles that we we're hitting now. If if that makes sense, that does make sense. And you know, just thinking about the physical office, I have to say that you know, I was 100% remote for the last three years. But one thing I've noticed is that it's I really like to go in and, and talk with people. I don't like to do it all the time. So. And also, like, for example, you do a lot of podcast recording and important recordings for your online content. And that's that's actually almost impossible to do at home. I am not at, at my home right now because I have a neighbor who likes to sing and <laughs> I never know when he's going to sing. And so I've needed to contact local offices where I am to get tools to to be able to keep doing my remote work. And I I'm sure that your employees who are in Tokyo are, are really hoping they can get back to the office, but I would imagine they may not want to go all the time. They may not want to be the Monday to Friday that they were before, you know, because maybe they are more productive at home, but it's kind of finding that balance going forward. Like what tools do we need? When do we need to all be in the same room? For example, at the co-working space here today, um, I, I know there's a team of eight that we're all looking for a co-working space together today and they needed to be together as eight to really get things done fluidly, but they don't, you know, they're not always living near each other. So it's kind of like I can see for big companies going forward that a a hybrid is probably going to be the most beneficial and the most productive way to go forward. I I would agree with that statement. It'll be really interesting to see how it goes for you guys starting early next year, like you said. Yeah. But the office is still important, I think. I think 100% remote is challenging. I'm like I said, I'm even though I'm 100% quote remote, I'm still going to an office that's just a it's a shared office. So it's um it's different, but in your case you've got I'm sure a lot of security or or you know co- copyright company privacy issues that can't be fully used in a co-working space that that doesn't that you don't own or you're not paying for, you know. 
Now, one one of the interesting things that uh, hasn't been addressed, right, and it's always like uh, they're always slower, the, the legal aspects of this, right? So if you actually read through like an employee contract, you know, and if you actually read the government laws on what the company's responsible for, it's like the company's responsible for providing a safe working environment, right? Um, and now this is all skewed and, um, you know, you have people who are working you know, anywhere they want, but they're under these employee contracts. So it's kind of interesting, fascinating how these laws might change to adapt to this or, you know, the, the, the companies might have to adapt and just have everyone come back due to their legal obligations. So it's kind of, it's, it's an interesting area that's, that's kind of happening because, you know, you, as an employer, you have certain responsibilities, right? Oh, yeah. But do you, should you continue to have those same responsibilities going forward? Like, do the laws need to be changed? And, yeah. and that doesn't, that's, that's the, that's not always a short process. So yeah, it's, um, maybe some of the responsibilities of the employer are going to shift to, let's say, these co-working spaces instead. And now they've got new responsibilities. So yeah. Or should they even have responsibilities? It's like you're choosing where to go. Um, to work. That's your own choice. So it's going to be interesting around the world to see how things are handled. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you for sharing. It's like, it's so interesting to chat with somebody who has scaled their business to such a, a big level. How many, roughly how many employees do you have now? About 70 people like working on this, on our um, project full time. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a lot of different issues that are required by everybody from all these different countries. So, yeah, and the different cultures that they come from regarding work. That's a whole other topic. But <laughs> yeah, um, it can't be it can't be always easy to balance all this stuff. So the duct tape is required. <laughs> well, as we've as we've been hearing, there have been um, around the world now um, changes for travel. I know that it seems that Japan, let's hope in early next year, will start to let people come in again and then vice versa. You'll be able to go out much more easily. Um, are there any places outside of Japan that you're you've been like, OK, this was been on my bucket list. I really need to do this as soon as I can. What destinations are you really excited to to finally get get to again or for the first time after the restrictions are lifted? Yeah, so I think uh, I think that first trip has to be home. It's been two years, right? Like uh, it's, it's unthinkable. Um, two years. Uh, it will have been by the time the next time I see the family, right? And, uh, you know, you can maintain, I, I'm a firm believer you can re- maintain the relationship by having the Skype calls and the Alexa calls and all of these things. But, um, you know, that, that physical component is so important. So first trip's got to be home. Uh, and then after that, oof, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I, mm, um, yeah, first one trip to the U.S. Uh, and then maybe next year, if we can, sometime China, see the families, maybe Korea in there. So, but no, no place that's been burning, uh, only home, only home. That's really, really sweet. I'm sure your family cannot wait, especially with three children and how much they change in two years. It's, it's, you know, unfathomable to think you could have ever gone two years without physically seeing the family. So Hope you can get back. I know that today actually is when the U.S. has lifted a lot of restrictions for, for example, Europe. Finally, my fellow Europeans here can go directly to the U.S. 
they have not been able to do so since March 2020. So I think there's a lot of excited people today. So, yeah, I hope that you can get there as soon as possible. Yeah, it's, um, yeah. And, uh, the good part too is, uh, I will send, uh, you know, Becky, I kind of, uh, a bit of a strategic answer. I'm going to send this link to my, uh, mom. So make her feel a little guilty. <laughs> oh, yes, <laughs> or, yes. <laughs> make her feel like I'm a good son. Yes, yeah. It's, it's, it's such a calculated thing. I know you don't, you never know what you never know too with this, like this virus that we've had going. Like it's such a strange one and that some people have no symptoms and it's like, well, you know, it's so hard to gauge the safety. Um, so yeah, I hope that you guys get to reunite and I'm sure you're going to, you're going to go there and they're going to come back to Japan. For me, Japan has been the place that I've really missed. I've only been, I actually managed to go to Japan because of my permanent residency in July, but only for five days. And then I had to kind of secretly get myself out of the country again (laughs) while being tracked by all the apps. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's a place that because of my long history with it is like, no, I need to go back and spend a lot more time than five days. So I'll let you know when that happens. That will be great, Becky. And thank you, Peter, for joining me today. I'm so glad we finally got to have this conversation. And um, I look forward to even more things coming from Innovative Language. Listeners, it is a wonderful language learning tool. And there's so many resources you can get by getting a subscription to the company in whatever language you choose. So, yeah, thank you, Peter, for joining me today. Thank you, Becky. Thank you so much, Peter, for sharing your story of coming to Japan and figuring out how to start a business from scratch in a foreign country. It's so impressive that you have grown this company now into a flourishing online business with thousands of fans around the world and millions of views on YouTube. Listeners, if you're looking for an effective and entertaining way to learn a language with a content base that is always growing, I can definitely recommend Innovative Language, which I will put a link to on the schooloftravels.com. The Innovative 101 Language app is also a very helpful app to augment your learning experience, and there is a lot of free content to download. I'm personally using it for Portuguese and finding it to be a very useful supplement to what I'm learning in my everyday life in Portugal. With this podcast, I hope Peter has also convinced you to move Japan even higher up your travel bucket list, as his love for the country is infectious. As a travel experience, I cannot recommend Japan enough, and I'm sure that Peter would agree. I'm just hoping, as we are now so close to another new year, that we all get the chance to travel again freely to those places we've been missing very soon. Thanks for joining us today, listeners. And until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay tuned. Thanks for listening to the School of Travels podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to subscribe and leave us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to The Sam Chase for allowing us to use their song, In a Perfect World. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode, and remember to always let travel be your teacher. If you keep your options open, there are places you will go. They will treat you like the kings and queens your parents thought you'd be when you were born. You'd see it all with your head up standing tall, and you'd look back and think it's funny how you spent your time and money.